right, one thing that we want to do uh, starting uh, last week is uh, we're going to have a deacon give up and read a, pardon me, and read our scripture. So Daniel Gerber, one of our deacons, is going to come up. Uh, if you have your copy of God's Word, it's going to be Philippians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 20, 12 through 30. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 30. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but for you, but, for, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, engaged, uh, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. Entertainment. You, you, you can watch anything you want almost any time if you've got an internet connection. That's America, right? We have everything that would be the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And what's sad? It's not working. It's not working. Because not only do we have a multi-billion dollar industry for all these things, we also have a multi-billion dollar industry for antidepressants. Social anxiety and, and, and depression is, is through the roof in, in levels that have never been recorded throughout history. And if we're talking about these are the things that make people happy, 
sex, drugs, rock and roll, these are the things that make people happy, then why aren't they working? And what I find ironic is here you have a man in prison, in chains, who is happier than the average middle American Christian in their comfy church today. And it begs the question, why? What's the difference? What's the difference between Paul and the church-going member of America today? Is it a possible mistake? I think as we look at this text, and we're going to dive deeper into it, in fact, let's start with this beginning part of it, um, verses 12 through 18, and, and I think there is a prison mindset that Paul has that most uh, American Christians do not. Number one, you see, as he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. There is a right perspective of Paul in this passage, first of all, that Paul's perspective is not about his current circumstances, but about the gospel. That Paul is able to look at his circumstances and he says, hey, I'm in prison here, I've got chains, Paul would... Paul would say in other places that he is wearing the chains as an ambassador of God. And here's Paul's heartbeat. You can hear his heartbeat in the midst of prison. The gospel's being advanced, guys. Good news. I'm in prison, but the gospel's being advanced. That is a perspective that his goal in life has been the advance of the gospel. Paul, in, in Acts chapter 20, in one of the most profound passages to me in all of Scripture, Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem right before this happens. And as he's going back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20, starting at verse 23, he says to these, these elders from Ephesus that he probably will never see again. They're crying and they're saying, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to be arrested. And you know what Paul says? He says, none of these things move me. He stopped crying. I don't care about going to prison. In fact, the Holy Spirit has told me that I'm going to be imprisoned and I'm going to probably end up going to my death, but none of that matters to me except that I would finish the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's a perspective. Imagine if we carried that perspective in life, that when things happen, when tragedy happens to us, we can say, how is the gospel going to be advanced through this? You know what that does? It takes our perspective away from self and puts it on the one and only one who matters, and that is Jesus Christ. There's a perspective of Paul in this prison mindset. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Then he goes on. He says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the, all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. There's his purpose. We already mentioned it, his purpose to advance the gospel. But look at what happens. Look at how Paul is able to look at this and say, you know what, this isn't a bad thing. Everybody in this prison house, they now know about Jesus. Whether they believe him or not, they now know about Jesus. So what bad things have happened to me, look at how it has advanced the gospel in such a way that, that the entire household of Caesar and the entire imperial guard, they all at least know who Jesus is. It's purpose. But his mindset is also on, on his brothers. Notice the next thing he says, and most of the brothers having become, have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, and they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
So Paul is not only thinking about the gospel, he's thinking about the purpose of trying to to get others to hear about Jesus, but he's thinking about his brothers and sisters. And, And what has happened is that as he is imprisoned, the brothers and sisters are saying, if Paul can do it, we can too. And there's boldness and there's power that's beginning to grow in the church in Rome. And then Paul talks about this kind of odd section of Scripture. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am, here, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So the gospel is being preached. Some are ridiculing. Some are, are in love. And, and, and Paul says, you know what? All publicity is good publicity, right? The gospel is being proclaimed. So I'm in prison, and I should, in, by all imaginations of the American culture and the American dream, Paul should be miserable. You know why? Because he gave his life to Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And he said, I'm committed to serving him who has has shown me the truth, and what did it get him? Prison. By the world's view, that is failure. That he comes to know Jesus, and he commits his life to Jesus, and he says, I'm going to proclaim the truth of Jesus, and instead of being fulfilled with the abundant riches that every day is Friday, he's found in prison. But yet in prison, he is the happiest man on earth because he looks at this perspective and he says the gospel is being advanced. And he says in an incredible way, and in that I rejoice. And then he continues on to the next paragraph. Yes, and I will rejoice. Is this just Paul? You know, as we look at this, is this just Paul making lemonade from lemons, right? He's trying to take his bad circumstance and he's trying to make it good, right? That's that's what's going on here. No. Paul understood something that if we can just grab hold of today, I can promise you this. Your life will be radically changed. There's a principle So you have this paradox of of what's going on in the world today compared to Paul. But there's a principle here, and it's really, it's in verse 21. We're going to jump around a little bit, but listen to this verse, and I want you to ingrain it in your mind. In verse 21, Paul says, For to me, to live is, is Christ, and to die is grain. Here's the principle that Paul lived by. Christ is my life. He's my life. That's it. If I'm going to live, I'm going to live wholeheartedly for him. I love sports, and I am amazed at some of the lunatic sports fans there are out there. You can follow certain sports teams, and and they, you know, the last, I think it was last year during an NCAA basketball game, the University of Kentucky got beat, and there were death threats on the referee. I mean, that's how ludicrous it is, this, this devout following in such a way, a dedication that people are going to spend thousands upon thousands of dollars. I'm a huge Cubs fan. Everybody knows that when the Cubs went to the World Series, I had several people ask me, if you ever got tickets to go to a Cubs game, would you go to Wrigley Field to watch them in the World Series? And you know what my answer was? Absolutely no way. 
because I can sell those tickets for way more than it's worth. There is no experience that is worth that. But there are people that are dedicated to things, and, and yet I find it amazing. We have people that are more dedicated to a sports team than to Jesus Christ, the ruler and savior of the universe. And Paul says, for to me to live is Christ. Look at what Paul says here as we walk through this, verses 19 through 21. It, it, you see, first of all, his true desire. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers... And the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my life, my body, whether by life or by death. Pause there. His true desire. So as we look at this text, you know, Paul's in prison. He's writing to the Philippians, and he's writing to them about joy. And, and so if we read this, um, the first thing I notice is Paul says that I am convinced that this will turn out for my deliverance. So that's what Paul's clinging to in prison, right? That's his joy, that he will be delivered because he has lost his freedom, and he will be freed. That's Paul's joy, right? No. That's not Paul's joy. You know how we know that? Because of what he says at the very end. He says, whether by life or death. Because when I was reading through this text, I saw the word deliverance, and I circled and I said, deliverance from what? What is Paul looking for deliverance from? It's not from the imprisonment. He is confident and he has full assurance that God is going to deliver him. And, and, and he says, but whether it's by my life or by my death. His true desire is not freedom from prison. What else does he say? He says, he goes on, he says uh, that uh, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, and it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. So that's it, right? That he will not be ashamed, that one day that all of this will be justified, that he will stand before the Roman emperor and and they'll say, you know what, Paul, you were wronged. You know, there are so many times in life where I just wish that the reality and the truth of what the circumstance came to light so that when people speak ill of me, that at least it'll be proven that I was right and they are wrong. My favorite words, right? I was right. But that's not what Paul's looking for. He says, whether by life or by death. So what is Paul's joy? What is he looking for in prison? What is bringing this out? It's that principle. Because he goes on and he says that I will be uh, 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 not ashamed of what? With full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Brothers and sisters, Paul's joy, where he found joy, was in living a life that honored Jesus Christ. That was his joy. The principle is that our lives are only ever about one thing, to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of our life, that we would live in such a way that it brings honor and glory to him. 
It's the only thing that will ever bring true joy. Jesus Christ is the only thing worth anything in life. Paul says in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Peter, in writing to his epistle, and, and Peter was dealing with the idea of suffering and how the Christians should have joy, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. And then later on, we'll look... Uh, further down the road in Philippians chapter 3 in this incredible passage, and Paul ends this passage of talking about the pros and cons of life. He says, these are the things that I have achieved, and they are worthless compared to knowing Jesus Christ. And he says, at the close of that, he says that my hope and my goal in life, my aim is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The principle of joy, and the sooner you understand this, the sooner your life will be fulfilling and have any meaning is this, that Jesus Christ is the only reason you live. He's the only thing you live for. He's the only thing you should ever desire. He is the, the hope of glory. Do you see what Paul is saying in verse 21 here? For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's what Paul is saying. If I have to live, I'm going to do it always only for Jesus. And if I die, I get to be with him forever. Imagine. Imagine a church that believed that. That all we focused on, that our heartbeat was to live for Christ. And then you see, so that's his true desire. You also see a true dilemma here. Paul goes on, he says, if I'm to live, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm betwixt, I'm, I'm struggling in myself. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet uh, uh, which, I sh which shall I choose? I cannot tell, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to, is to be with Christ, for it is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul says this, to live or die. To live or die, that's, that's the dilemma of life. And he says, if I die, I get to always only be with the one who I love more than anything. Man, if I just stopped right there and closed the sermon out and we could do that, man, our lives would be drastically different. But Paul says, I know it's good, though, for me to be here because I have work to do. And if I'm going to live, I will do it all for Christ and for his glory. And, and I struggled with this this week because I'm sitting here asking myself as I look at my faults and failures each and every day and I'm walking through this and I'm like, man, yeah, I stink at that, I stink at this. And, and I say to myself, I had a conversation with my wife the other day, um, why don't I have this commitment? Where did burnout come from, right? We talk about it throughout the American church that, you know, be, before uh, the American church came into being, there was a saying among the missionaries of the world, spend and be spent. When, when I used to run track, I ran the most awful event that you could ever imagine in life. It's a cruel, torturous device. It's called the 400-meter run, and it's one full lap around. 
And you can't jog it because you'll get beat. And if you try and sprint it by about the third, the, the fourth 100, you'll probably start walking because it's really hard to sprint it because unless you're an Olympic athlete. So you have this, this awful thing, and, 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 and our coach used to say something, and I always hated it, is you should want to throw up when you finish. You know why? Because it means you have nothing left to give. You don't want to finish and have a reserve left because you wasted it. And I wonder how many of us as Christians, as we walk through life, when we get to the end of our life, we're going to have a reserve because we didn't spend it. And that was convicting to me as I walked through this. Think of Paul. He said, my life doesn't even mean anything to me that I might finish my task with joy, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And later on in Philippians, he would say, I press on toward the mark. I, I pursue it with everything I have. If you've ever met my neurotic dog, you, you've got a, a light and you can put it anywhere and he will chase that thing till the day he dies. He would chase it into the fireplace, I'm convinced. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we don't have joy because we don't get this. But it's still this, this right here, what we've talked about, doesn't necessarily explain where Paul's joy is coming from. There's one more part of it. And, and if everything so far was hard, this last part is the hardest. Because as we look at this world, and, and I know what my struggle is as I walk through life and I talk about what are the things that keep me from pressing on towards Christ and making Him my goal in life, here's the problem I have. This world. The things of this world. Entertainment. Sports. Even family, friends, all not necessarily bad things, but they grab our attention, don't they? And they make our vision of Christ cloudy sometimes. But here's where this passage turns and gets really interesting. I'm going to jump ahead to verse 29. It says, for it has been granted to you. You know what that means? It means it's been gifted to you. It's been a gift to you. What? What is the gift? For it has been granted to you to believe. We know that. That the gift of salvation is a gift that has been given to us that we could believe in Jesus Christ. But notice what else Paul says. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Brothers and sisters, suffering is a gift from God. Let that sink in. Suffering is a gift that has been granted to you from God. Whoa, 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 whoa. We have a cruel God that He would gift us with, with suffering, right? We know what the, the fruits of the Spirit are, and one of the fruits of the Spirit is, is joy, and here we have this fruit of the Spirit of joy in me, that when God is in me, and yet we are told that Paul says that you have been granted the gift of suffering. And what does that mean? What is the beauty of suffering, and why does it bring joy? I mean, Jesus even alluded to this promise. He says in John chapter 16, verse 33, that trials and tribulations will come. You will face them. Why? Because God knows exactly our minds and our thoughts, and He knows how easily we're distracted. You know, I, I mentioned this dog. If, if, if you could have him sitting and, and, and being calm and relaxed, the moment you go and, and shine a light somewhere, he's gone. 
His attention is gone. And I can't help but mock that and think, what a dumb dog. And then I realize that is me. Jesus Christ has set my life in order to follow after him. And it's like, oh, squirrel. (laughs) So here's the beauty of it. Why suffering comes into play. Four things I want you to understand about the beauty of suffering and why it brings joy. Number one, it connects us with our Savior. Notice what Paul says. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should also uh, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Twice there, for his sake. When we suffer, we suffer and it connects us with our Savior who has suffered. When I played sports, there was a bonding experience at the beginning of the season. It was called two-a-days. You practiced in August in a thousand-degree weather twice a day. And at the end, we would say, years later, remember when we suffered together? There's a bond. There's a... Romanian pastor, his name is Joseph Sohn. If you ever hear anything by him, he's an excellent speaker. I'm not even sure if he's still alive, but he shared one time in this message that I heard this most incredible thing. He said uh, when he was in prison, the chief of the Romanian uh, uh, prison, uh, the what they would call like their uh, CIA or Secret Service, you know, these are the, the head honchos. He came in and... and um, They were trying to get him to confess to something. He wouldn't do it, and they beat him, and he yelled out in pain. And later on, the the persecutor left, and he came back the next day, and as soon as he walked in the room, Joseph spoke up, and he said, Sir, I need to apologize to you. He's like, he said, I don't know what came over me. I don't even know this is the Holy Spirit speaking. And he said, I need to apologize to you, Because when you beat me yesterday, I screamed out. What? He said, I I realized after you left that this is the Holy Week that my Savior suffered and died. And when you beat me, I should have thanked you for providing me an opportunity to suffer with my Savior for my Savior. That's a mindset. It's missing in a lot of our culture today because we are infatuated with comfort i heard a sermon this week it was entitled the idolatry of comfort man that has infected our society comfort i don't want to do that because it might hurt suffering connects us with our savior for his sake it confirms us of our savior notice what paul says right before this passage he says and not frightened in anything by your opponents notice what he says here this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from god paul says to to the brothers he says when you are uh, uh suffering when you're persecuted if you when When you handle it correctly, the world that is persecuting you will see that and it will be a clear sign of their destruction and a confirmation of your salvation. Brothers and sisters, when we are going through it and we go through it for the right reasons, our heart confirms to us the reality that Jesus Christ has bought me and redeemed me. Third, 
that consecrates us for our Savior. Suffering produces sanctification. Suffering produces sanctification that there is dross in our life that needs to be removed. James talks about it. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Paul talks about it in Romans. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that our suffering produces perseverance. Over and over again. Suffering makes us more and more like Christ. We love that passage in uh, uh, Romans 11, 28, where we read it and we probably look at it in the wrong way. It says um, that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him or are called according to his purposes. And what we like to interpret that verse as saying is that um, everything good happens to us because of Jesus. Right? We know that all things work together for good. That's where we stop a lot of times. For those who love him or are called according to his purposes. But the reality is that everything that happens to you, including suffering, makes you more like Jesus. Because that's the next verse, 29, that, that we should be conformed into the image of his son. Suffering makes us more and more like Jesus. And the last point is it carries us to our Savior. Brothers and sisters, when the things in this world are removed from us, we have nothing left but Jesus. Turn your eyes upon him and the things of this world grow strangely dim. Well, what if God needs to remove the things of this life from us so that he can be brightly shining in our life? What if God knows the problems that we have made idolatrous in our lives and suffering makes us cling to him more and more sickness and death? You say, God, why would you allow cancer into somebody's life? God, why would you allow suffering? Why would you take a child from its mother? Why would you allow broken families? Why would you allow spouses to leave? Why would you allow all these things? Because God wants you. And he will take whatever away he needs to to get you. And it makes us cling to him. And suffering makes us desire the better things. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read this incredible chapter of the heroes of the faith. And in Hebrews 11, starting at like verse 24, it says that Moses forsook the treasures of Egypt. Why? To be mistreated with his brothers. Because he knew that in his brothers was the Savior of the world. Hebrews 11, 24, by faith Moses, when he was growing up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The fleeting pleasures of sin. Why? He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. We don't like suffering. I don't. It stinks. It hurts. But if we can look at it and rejoice in it, that God is doing it because he wants you, that he's going to take away all the things that cloud your vision of him, the things that we grab hold of and hold so tightly to. How do we apply it? I want to ask you a question. Do you desire Jesus above all things? 
Paul did. Turn real quickly to Philippians chapter 3. I mentioned this briefly. We'll cover this in a couple of weeks. In fact, on Mother's Day. Uh, for we are the circumcision, Paul says in verse 3, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks else, he has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. And listen to Paul's list. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, I had all these things. I had family heritage because I was born in the right group. I had social status. I was a Pharisee. I had biblical knowledge. I had religious activity. I had uh, a moral lifestyle. I had all these things. And what does he say? Loss, that I might gain Christ. In fact, he uses the word dung to describe all that stuff. Good stuff. Dung compared to Christ. Do you desire Jesus Christ above all things? And, and, and that our goal would be, as Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's the gospel, brothers and sisters. If you are sitting here today and you say that doesn't have value to me, it's because you don't know him. Suffering will never make sense to anyone who does not know Jesus Christ. And here's the beauty of it, that the gospel is this, that, that all who would believe... Because they recognize their need. You know, we, we, it takes about two seconds for us to realize that life is filled with all kinds of failures and sin. And, and, and people don't need to be told that they are sinful people. They know it inherently because the law of God is written on our hearts. And when we see the brokenness in our life, here's the reality. Jesus Christ says, I am come that all men might be made free. And he died on a cross in, in place and in a, as, as a substitute for our sin. And he offers that as an atoning sacrifice, as a, as a replacement for what we deserve. And he says, now, if you believe, it's as simple as this. If you believe, my righteousness will be yours. And then when we understand that, we will pursue him in a way that we will also understand whatever this life can do to me, it means nothing. Because one day I'll stand before my Father in heaven, made righteous by his Son, and he will say to me, well done, my child. I want to close with this last thought for you. If you are suffering, why do you think that is? And here's where it's scary. If you are a child of God, what are the idols of our heart that God needs to rip away to get our attention? Because he cares more about you and your soul than the circumstantial happiness of this life. And he will do whatever it takes to grab you and to hold you and to care for you. It's like the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and, and this guy was the perfect elder candidate. He was, he was young, he was filled with biblical knowledge, and by the way, he could tithe a lot. And what does Jesus say to him? Complete the law. And he says, all that I've done. He says, but you've lacked one thing. Go and sell all you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me. And what does the rich young ruler do? Is he walks away sad because he cared more about the possessions of this life. You want to know what the idols are? 
What are the things that cloud out your time with him? Finances, health, family, reputation. None of these are more important to God than you. And you know what? Here's the good news in all this. that When those things happen, we can take joy that he considers me worthy to be his child. And I can rejoice that through those things, he is getting my attention because he wants me. And what a great thing to walk through. It's not easy. You know, I don't see Paul saying I'm happy that I'm in prison, but he says I will rejoice because the joy of the Lord is my strength. And I have a relationship with Jesus and he is who I pursue in all things. And I pray that that would be our heart today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a hard thing to hear sometimes. But Father, I pray that we would be reminded in the midst of our trials, our sufferings, some self-inflicted, some at the hands of persecution. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be to realize that you are doing a work. And Father, I pray that our hearts would be of the mindset of Paul, that we would look and see where is the gospel being advanced through my suffering. Whether it's just in my own life that I need to be reminded that Jesus has died for my sins, that I am forgiven and cleansed. Father, I pray that the gospel would advance in our hearts. I pray that as a result of suffering, people would come to know you. And I pray that brothers and sisters would become more and more bold because they realize that suffering is not an evil thing, but is a gift from you to, to remove the things, the idolatrous things in our life that, that cloud us of the one true treasure in life. Father, if we but could live in such a way that we would understand that the worst thing that could happen to us, death, is actually the greatest thing that could happen to us. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today that does not know you, that their heart's aim isn't pursuit of you, that today would be a day where they would reach out and realize that you have declared that when you are lifted up, you would draw all men to yourself, that you would declare, come all you who are weary and burdened, and you will find rest in Jesus. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be in tune to you, that we would consider the suffering of this world, the refining fires of our Father in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.